Well, Merry Advent. Sounds weird, right? Because this is the time of the year when Christians fight the man and say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. So we say Merry Christmas all the time because it's that time of the year, that magical, mythical, fascinating time of the year where it gets cooler or cold for us. Lights litter our neighborhoods. We have a tradition of cutting down a tree that's not native to our environment and placing it in our homes. Tradition and sentiment floods our experience. We eat too many cookies, maybe. We have all these traditions and all these things that we do. And generally, generally, people are a little happier. They may not honk as much. They may let you cross the road. Maybe they smile. Maybe. Right? Christmas is an incredible time of year. It's a magical time of year. There's something in the air. There's something about Christmas. But for us in the church, we're celebrating Advent. And Advent isn't just a few Sundays where we light some candles and say some things. We've been discussing this. Advent is a time of anticipation. We are anticipating Christmas. We're anticipating the day that God broke through into our experience, into our world. The Savior was born, God with us. The rescue plan for us was enacted on Christmas, and we wait in anticipation, and we don't wait passively. We saw last week, and Tom was discussing that we're waiting for a breakthrough. And so we're asking ourselves, God, what is the breakthrough that we're longing for? And more than that, not only what is the breakthrough that we're longing for, but God, how will I respond when you actually do breakthrough? And we saw in Mary what it looks like. Mary last week showed us that when God breaks through into your life and puts something before you, you surrender. You hand it over to God. And so we've begun this series, The Rhythms of Grace, that will play out in 2015 as we go through Luke in some really, really neat ways. So be excited about what's in store next year. We started with Mary, Elizabeth and Mary. And Mary is exceptional. She is 13 or 14 years old, but she is an exceptional woman. She has handed over her life to Christ. God has broke through in her life, and she said yes. She said yes, God. But Mary is a dynamic individual. She teaches us more lessons than just one. And this morning, she's going to teach us something interesting. She's going to teach us what it looks like to accept the vocation that God has given you. And by vocation, I mean two things. Not just the special, unique, specific vocation that God has given you, because he's given all of us specific, special vocations that we are uniquely tailored for. But also, he's given us a general vocation. And we see this in the life of Mary. Mary accepted her general vocation, which was this. She was a Jewish woman who was to be faithful and pious and serving and surrendering to her God in every aspect of her life. And she accepted that. And she also accepted her specific, unique vocation, which was to be the mother of the Son of God. Dorothy Sayers says this about vocation. Our vocation is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he or she finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he or she offers him or herself 
to God. What she's saying is true, and it's what we see in the life of Mary, is that vocation, from the general sense to the specific, unique sense, is sacred. It is a sacred thing. It is not as if you have a unique vocation over here as a Christian, and then you have the vocation that the world tells you you have to do to survive. They are combined. They are together. God incorporates and encompasses all aspects of our life. And this is what we're going to see in the life of Mary, is that we don't serve Christ somewhere. We serve Christ where we are. I want to repeat that because it may sound confusing. We don't serve Christ somewhere. We serve Christ where we are. And this challenges our Western Christian American mindset because we've established the idea of serving as going somewhere to do something. So there's an opportunity to paint a home. Someone needs their home painted. And so we feel that God's called us to serve. And so we go somewhere to do something, whether or not we're qualified, whether or not we're good at painting. Maybe we're terrible at painting, but we go. Or we feel that we're called to serve God and we're not a people person, but we need to go serve a meal to the homeless. So we go. Or we, we can't travel. We're not good at traveling. We have a really specific diet. We can only eat granola bars. And we really aren't good at strenuous labor, but God's telling me to go to Haiti, so I got to go to Haiti. I got to serve. This may sound weird for me to talk like this because if you know, I'm the international missions pastor here and I ask you to go to Haiti almost every week. And you should. And I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. Painting homes is wonderful. Serving a meal to those that are hungry is wonderful. Going to Haiti is incredible. And these are things that we are to do, right? There's a general vocation that God has given all Christians to share and to show Christ with every opportunity that God gives us, to take risk for the hurting and the oppressed, to stretch ourselves outside of our comfort zone often, to serve whenever possible, regardless of our proclivities or our personality. This is a general vocation given to all of us. However, I think what's happened in our Christian culture is we've used the language of service projects, service opportunities, mission trips, and it's affected us to think that serving means you go somewhere to do something, and it removes you away from the understanding that serving is actually you serve where you are. We don't serve Christ somewhere, we serve him where we are. You see, serving and following Christ in that general vocation that he's called all of us is to encompass every aspect of our life, our city, our neighborhood, our family, our friends, our work, the mission trip we go on, the meal that we serve, the house that we paint, the stranger we sit next to on the plane, the coffee shop when someone asks us a curious question, the vacations we take, the Uber driver we use. Every aspect of our life is about serving and following Christ in the general vocation. We serve Christ where we are, not going somewhere. Though sometimes we go somewhere, but that's actually where we are. You see, sometimes God gives us in our life the ability, the time, the space, finances, whether ours or someone else is supporting us, to go on a mission trip. And we need to go. Sometimes he gives us a time and space and the ability to go serve a meal consistently at Hope South Florida, and we need to go. Sometimes he gives us a time and the space 
to go paint a home and we need to go. But that's actually where God has us. It's not about going somewhere and doing something. It's where God has us and who we are then in that time, in that space. Maybe you're thinking now, Carter's running down a rabbit hole and we're supposed to be talking about Mary. But I think Mary shows us this, right? You look at Mary and God comes to her where she is, how she is. He doesn't tell her to go somewhere. He doesn't tell her to become someone different. Because Mary, you have been open. You've been present where you are. And I'm calling you and I'm giving you the specific and unique vocation to be the mother of God. And Mary says yes. So, previously in the Rhythms of Grace, I've been wanting to do that. Did you see what I was doing there? It's like a show. You got it? So Mary, last week we saw that Mary, she's a teenage girl. She's living life and this angel comes to her. And this angel comes to her and she says, Mary, you are favored one of God. And Mary is not, for some reason, she's not startled at the appearance of the angel. She's startled by what the angel says to her, that she's favored. And Mary's an analytical girl. So she's pondering and she's thinking and she's running this through like, what does that mean? And troubles her. And the angel says, Mary, Mary, listen, being a favorite one of God is a good thing. Let me tell you what's going to happen. God has chosen you to be the mother of the Son of God, the child, the Savior of the world. And Mary's processing this, and she's thinking through this, like, why me? I mean, I'm normal. I'm average. I haven't done anything significant in my life. I'm like 13 years old. I'm not even married. She's running these things through her mind, like, am I going to be a good mother? What's the trajectory of the life of my son? And as she's running these through, she stops for a second and she says, "Uh, Angel, uh, I'm a virgin. And she's thinking this through and she she understands and she's beginning to process and she's believing what's being said to her, but she sees there's a little bit of an issue and, and the angel tells her, listen, don't worry about that. Nothing is impossible with God. And actually... Mary, you know your relative, Elizabeth, who was barren her entire life? She's with child right now. God can do anything. He can make dead things alive. He can, have a, he can make a virgin bear a child and remain a virgin. There's nothing impossible with God, and Mary contemplates, and she soaks all of this up, and she, it says that she says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary believes in the impossible. And so we pick up this morning in in Luke 1, verse 39. If you're doing your personal worship this past week, you know what happens. Mary leaves immediately and she goes to visit Elizabeth. She's excited. She's going to see her relative who is pregnant and she's showing. She's so excited to talk with her and see what it's like to be pregnant all the trials and the tribulations you go through in that experience because she's going to bear a child. She's going to have a son. And she gets to the door and she hasn't seen Elizabeth in a while and she knocks on the door. They open the door. You can imagine the exchange, right? You haven't seen someone for a long time that you really care deeply about. Her face lights up. They smile. They look at each other. They hug. And Mary greets Elizabeth. And Elizabeth steps back and grabs her stomach. And Mary's like, I do something wrong? What's happened? And Mary, Elizabeth, looks at Mary, and it's not fear. It's shock in a way that is awe-inspiring. And she looks at Mary and she says, Mary, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The Holy Spirit has come over me, and when you greeted me, the baby inside of me leapt. It jumped, and not in a scared way as if you yelled too loud, but for joy. And blessed are you, and blessed is the child that you are carrying. And Mary, you are blessed because you believed. Not because you're special in some unique way, but it's because you said yes. It's because you believe. And unlike my husband who didn't, and is facing the consequences of that, you believed and you are blessed. This really sounds wonderful. You read this and it's like, wow, it's amazing. But we have to be really careful not to depersonalize the characters in Scripture. Because what happens is we read this, and we're going to see the song that Mary sings in a second, and we can ascribe almost this mythical status to Mary. She doesn't seem accessible. And this has happened, right? In the history of the church, we have elevated Mary into some sort of demigod. Because we don't understand how this 13-year-old exceptional girl could... How can this be real? We look at our life when we were 13 and we're like, I'm not even like Mary now, let alone when I was 13. But you see, Mary is just like us. She's a normal woman. She is sinful. She struggles. She battles. She deals with things. And Mary had a lot to consider here. It wasn't as if, you know, God broke through into her life and said, Mary, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And she's like, awesome, wonderful. I just do me no issues. She had a lot to process. We know she said yes, but think about what she processed. As we saw last week, Mary's reputation is gone. It's gone. When she started so showing signs of pregnancy, everyone knows she's not married, which means either she cheated on her fiancé or her and her fiancé broke the law of God. So she's an easy woman. And not only that, but she's crazy. Because if you've gone and talked to Mary, you know that she tells you she's still a virgin and that God came to her and gave her a baby. She's insane. So she's the crazy person in town. That's easy. Reputation, gone. And there are very few things that we care more about in life than reputation. We want people to like us. Nobody wants to be viewed as the crazy person in town. You see, Mary was not only someone who lost her reputation, but she's from a very poor tribe, known as the pious poor. She is from a tribe that is oppressed and has been oppressed because of their poverty. They are people that yearn for justice because they face so much injustice. So Mary is not exactly the person that you would imagine that God would give the privilege and the vocation of being the mother of God. She's normal. She's average or below average. She's poor. She's not even married and she's young. And that's exactly who God chose. And she and God in his infinite wisdom knew Mary was actually the perfect candidate. And God didn't come to Mary and say, Mary, listen, I want you to be the mother of God's son of son of God. But listen, you're going to have to change a little bit. You're going to have to like get you out of this oppression poverty thing. You're going to have to work on figuring out how your reputation is going to get better. You and Joseph get married, so then it doesn't look as weird. God comes to her where she is and says, where you are is where I want you to be, and who you are is who I want you to be, and you're going to follow this, and you are going to be the mother of the Son of God. 
You don't got to change. You don't got to go somewhere. You don't got to become someone different. And Mary says yes. She works it through. She says yes. And so when Mary hears this from Elizabeth, when Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, Mary, you are blessed among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary is overcome with the grace of God. And we know what happens. She erupts into song. One of the most famous songs in Christian history. Magnificat. And we're going to read it. I want to read it in its entirety because this is an average or below average 13-year-old who believed in what the Lord was telling her. And here's what she says, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary overcome with the generosity and the grace of God in her life. Who am I to be favored? Who am I to have this special, unique vocation that God has given me? She erupts into spontaneous song. As I was working through this passage in personal worship this week, I wrote some questions down in my journal that were fairly condemning. I wrote this, What is my reaction when I recognize what God has done for me or in me? Is it worship? And this is the most convicting one. Do I recognize what God has done? Or do I attribute it to myself or to simply luck? So when I look at the ways that God has broken through in my life, do I just ascribe it to luck? Or do I think that I've done it? That I've earned it? That I've created it? See, Mary's reaction is immediately worship. And her song as she sings is is remarkably Hebrew in thought and manner of expression. And what that means is when you look at the passage, you read through her song, it sounds like scripture. And that's because a majority of it is made up of Old Testament quotations. Which means that Mary is consistently and continually in God's word. She's devouring it. She's memorizing it. She's singing it. It is a part of who she is, learning and soaking up and storing up God's word and his truth in her heart and in her mind. So when she erupts into song, Sounds like scripture. And this is normal. This would have been normal for a pious family back then to sing and to memorize scripture. But when you read that, when you read her song, does it sound like an obligation? Is it as if Elizabeth says all these really nice things to Mary and then Mary's like, okay, now I got to sing a song that sounds like scripture. Here we go. Been practicing this for a while. It's natural, right? It's real. It's who she is. And maybe some of you can relate to this. Many of us in this room and many people we know were raised in the church, maybe went to Christian school, and you were forced to learn Scripture. If you had a really, really strong teacher, maybe whole passages you memorized. 
You've sung songs. You've had Bible studies. You've studied David and Goliath 4,000 times. You know the stories. You know the Bible. You know the deal. You had homework. You had tests. You had quizzes. But the question for us is, how many of us that grew up in the church or grew up going to Christian school and still go to church, how many of us, what's the percentage of us that still see it as important and a priority to memorize, to study, to learn Scripture and God's Word? Because it was obligation then. Is it something we still do? So I think we have a huge problem in our culture, in our Christian culture in particular. There's a pastor named Vadi Bachman that pointed this out to me, and here's what he said. We will not tolerate biblical, theological, and spiritual maturity in Christians, especially men. I'm going to read that again because maybe you think I said it wrong. We will not tolerate biblical, theological, and spiritual maturity in Christians, especially men. Because we accept mediocrity and that's enough for us. Maybe you balk at this statement. Maybe you're silently saying amen because we don't normally say amen out loud. P.S. I'm neither for or against the statement of amen verbally. If you want to say amen, you can. It's great. But let me prove this to you. You have someone that's a teenager, maybe Mary's age, a little bit older, college student. And they love reading the Bible. They love it. They read the Bible consistently, daily. They're memorizing it. They think that's important. They want to know more about theology. Their cue on Amazon is the next Christian books that they want to learn from and they want to read. They're interested in learning about church history because they want to learn about the history of the church and where we've come from, the failures and the successes. What normally happens with that person? We go to them and we say, God's calling you to full-time ministry. Why? Because they love reading the Bible, because they take the Bible seriously, which says to store up God's word in your heart, in your mind, because they think it's important to understand church history, because they think in th- theology is vital, which literally means the study of God, because they think learning and reading perspectives on faith in God from other people is a valuable thing. Because of those things, they should be in full time ministry. Aren't those things that all of us should do? Isn't that the general vocation that God has given every Christian? Read the Bible, learn the Bible, study the Bible. Learn, process, mature. See, I think that's a vocation that we're all called to. But what happens is we're, not, we're comfortable with mediocrity. And so anyone that threatens mediocrity, we tell them to go to seminary, join a staff of a church. And this is kind of uncomfortable to say, I'll be honest, from the stage, but I want you to understand something. Pastors and church staff are not exempt from mediocrity. We just have a fancy title in front of our name. We can settle for mediocrity just as well. And this is the only place in our culture, it's the only vocation that settles for mediocrity. Does your vocation settle for mediocrity or they require progress and maturity and expertise? Does the church require progress, maturity, knowledge, expertise? What happens when someone in the church comes up and says, I want to be discipled. I want to learn theology. I want to learn how to read the Bible. I want to learn how to pray. We say, go talk to the pastors. That's their job. Yeah, it is. 
But does Christ not tell us to go to all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? See, think as Christians, we call ourselves followers of Christ, which means we're following him, which means we need to be learning about him, knowing what he thinks, storing up his words and his wisdom in our heart and our mind, processing the things that he says. And you see, Mary believed and she followed God. She stored up the truth of God's word in her heart and her mind, and it was consistent and it was real and it mattered. And so when she encountered the grace of God, when God broke through into her life, she erupted into song that sounded like scripture and is scripture. You see, she accepted her general vocation, right? To be a faithful, God-fearing woman, consistently following the places that God would lead her. And so it made her able to successfully follow the specific, unique vocation that God gave her, which was to be the mother of the Son of God. And she was 13 here. Can you imagine 33, 43, 53, 63-year-old Mary? If she sang a song then, we'd all just like pass out. It'd be amazing, right? It'd be probably really long, but it'd be incredible because I'm pretty sure Mary didn't settle for mediocrity. I'm pretty sure Mary accepted her general vocation so significantly and so powerfully that she was consistently growing in knowledge and relationship with God. So I think we often, we spend time in personal worship, and all of us, myself included, we spend time in personal worship, we come to church on Sunday, we attend community group, we read about these characters, and they're not accessible. We think to ourselves, I could never be like David. I could never be like Mary. I could never be like Peter or Paul. But I think that's precisely the problem. Because we think God wants us to be someone or something else. He wants us to go somewhere to do something. You see, God came to David where he was. God came to Mary where she was. God came to Peter and Paul where they were. And the only thing special and unique about them was they said yes. That's what was special and unique. They believed and they followed. They accepted the general vocation that God had given them, and then they accepted and followed with excitement the specific one that he broke through and gave them. David was meant to be king, and he said yes to it. Mary was meant to be the mother of Christ. And she said, yes, Peter and Paul were meant to be church planners and evangelists. And they said, yes, in the history of the church, we can look at a lot of people, not just pastors that have said yes to the things that God has put in front of them, the way that God broke through into their life and gave them a specific, unique vocation to follow. And they said, yes, because they understood that serving Christ is not something you do somewhere. It's where you are. And so when God breaks through into your life, where you are, you say, yes. You see, all of them, including us, we have a past, we have wounds, we have brokenness, we have doubts, we are not neatly packaged, we are extremely flawed. And God never asks them, nor does he ask us to change who we are. God does, in fact, change our heart and our mind. That's something he does. But he asks us to believe and follow where we are. And this is the amazing thing about them and about our God. Christ doesn't come to us and say, be someone different. Go somewhere else. 
Sometimes he calls us to go, but he never tells us to change who we are. He says, I want you where you are to be open and to be present to the way that I'm going to break through in your life, and I want you to say yes, because you're seeking me and you're following me, and you're going to be able to recognize it. See, Christ comes to all of us, and he says, stop imagining that you have to clean yourself up and fix yourself before you can serve me. You'll never stop cleaning yourself up. You will always clean yourself up. Come to me as you are. Bring your burdens, bring your doubts, bring your past, bring your present. Bring everything. I'll take it. Don't worry. Let's keep moving and let's go together. Roberta Bondi says this in Memories with God. She says, even Jesus was resurrected with his wounds. See, the question for all of us is not, God, who do you want me to be? It's, God, who have you made me to be? Where I am, who I am. Who have you made me to be? And give me the grace and the strength to say yes to that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are gracious to us. God, we thank you that you have rescued us, God with us. We thank you for this time of the year where we wait in anticipation for the day that you broke through. The Savior was born, and God, we wait and we anticipate that. We wrestle with the things that we're longing for, the ways that we're longing for you to break in. And Lord, we've seen with Mary what it looks like to respond correctly when you do, in fact, break in because you will. We wait with expectant hope, knowing that you are a God that always breaks through. So God, help us to accept our general vocation of being a Christian and what that looks like to seek you and to know you and to connect with you daily and consistently. Not out of obligation, God, but out of love. Feeling the freedom to do so. Then God, make us aware of how you've uniquely gifted us and who you've called us to be and the specific vocation that you've given us because God, you've given us all one that is very different. And you want us to serve you exactly where we are, not cleaned up and made pretty, but where we are connected with you. Help us to see that, God, and give us the grace and the strength to say yes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.